The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Catholics believe. This is a special edition, not one of our question-answer periods, nor a catechism lesson. It's a matter of addressing a question that came up recently. One of the reader's questions on the origin of the Orthodox churches, and mentioning that some of his traditional Catholic friends had actually left the Catholic Church and joined the Orthodox schismatic churches as an alternative. Uh, the uh, writer of the question said that his friends or friends had been city of accountants and uh, that for them became a step toward uh, schismatic orthodoxy. Now, I did take some time, uh, quite a bit of time, trying to give a, a synopsis of the history of the Orthodox churches, the origins from schism. And uh, I did not mention everything, obviously. It would have been impossible to do in a matter of a 45 minute to an hour program. But my purpose in addressing the history of the Orthodox schism was to point out the real nature of the problem. That is to say, it wasn't really a matter so much of uh, religion and religious principle, it was a matter of cultural culture clash, as it were, of the East and the West. Notably, uh, Byzantium, uh, in a sense, arrogating itself to a status above uh, Catholic Rome. Now, one question that arises from this whole matter of the origin of the Orthodox churches has to do with Our Lady's requested Fatima that the Holy Father consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Our Lady promised in the apparitions of July 1917 that if the Holy Father, the Pope of the Catholic Church, would consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart at the time when she would ask for that consecration, that the graces would be there through her intercession for the conversion of Russia. If not, Russia would not be converted, rather that she would spread her errors throughout the world. This idea, therefore, of the consecration of Russia and the conversion of Russia are tied to Our Lady's words of Fatima, but they are also very heavily bound up with the whole question of the Russian Orthodox Church. When we ask our question about what does Our Lady mean when she says that Russia will be converted? Russia would be converted to what? At the time the children heard these words, the Bolsheviks had not carried out their revolution and made Marxism triumphant in Russia. The Marxists had not yet succeeded in bringing communism to Russia. Our Lady was talking about Russia being converted. Well, converted to what? 
Would she have been converted to Christianity? Uh, generically, no. Russia already was completely, had been for centuries, uh, converted to faith in Christ. Was she talking about some vague conversion of Russia to Protestantism? And the answer is absolutely not. Our Lady was not talking about the conversion of Russia to Protestantism. Uh, she was schismatic. Uh, the Orthodox churches at that time did not believe in Protestantism. <clears throat> largely, they believed in what Catholics believed, largely, as I say, but they had lost the principle of the office of St. Peter, conferred uh, by our Lord upon the church, instituted by our Lord, and carried on through the successors of Peter throughout the ages. <clears throat> so Russia still, and her people, her Orthodox Russian people, had a great devotion to the Blessed Mother, unlike Protestants. Russian Orthodox people still believed firmly in the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. <clears throat> if they were to be converted, therefore, it wasn't away from these beliefs to become Protestant or somehow generically Christian, whatever that means. Our Lady was saying very clearly that they would be converted to the Catholic faith, that they would be returning to the Catholic fold. They would be reunited with the Catholic Church again. This is what their conversion meant, nothing less than that. And Frère Michel de la Sainte Trinité points out in his masterful works on Fatima that it would be a tragic mistake for people to gather from the fall of the Berlin Wall and other uh, attempts of the Russians at Glasnost and Perestroika that the people of the West should be taken into the false belief that Russia was being converted. He said nothing could be farther from the truth. Russia was not being converted because our ladies' demands at Fatima had not been met. Russia had not been consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, certainly not by the Holy Father and all the bishops of the world, as our lady said was necessary in 1929. <clears throat> and in 1942, when Pope Pius XII <clears throat> responded to a letter from Lucia, the principal Sira Fatima, that he consecrate the world with a special note about Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He did make the consecration of the world, indeed, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and he did so in union with the bishops of Portugal, gathered in the cathedral in Lisbon. But he mentioned Russia only obliquely, as those who treasured and honored the icon, iconic image of Our Lady in their homes, but those icons now were hidden away. He didn't mention because of Marxism and communism and Bolshevism. He just mentioned that they were a people who were devoted to Our Lady and who treasured the image of Our Lady with the Christ child but who were suffering persecution. He mentioned that only, as I say, obliquely, <clears throat> in the sense that they had to conceal the image of Our Lady and their devotion to her at that time, in 1942, under Joseph Stalin. Now, our Lord did tell Lucia 
that he was very pleased by Pope Pius XII's consecration, although that consecration was incomplete. That was the word that was used. It was not complete. It still pleased our Lord that the Pope overcame the opposition to the consecration. Now, there was not a mention of that opposition, but the fact that our Lord was pleased even by the incomplete consecration is a hint that Pope Pius XII had to sacrifice something. He had to overcome something in order to make that consecration. And that was what was pleasing to our Lord. What was that opposition to the consecration of the world and especially the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary? Was Pope Pius XII dealing with some tremendous obstacle? Was he dealing with some furious, malevolent opposition from hell? Was he dealing with the opposition of the powers of the world to the consecration? Was he dealing with opposition within the church? The answer is yes to all of those, all of those questions. Pope Pius XII was opposed certainly by the powers of hell who knew the consequences of this consecration. And uh, the world's powers, the allies, considered Stalin their friend and uh, their partner in the war against Hitler, fascism, Nazism. And they did not in any way want to offend him or in any way jeopardize his alliance in the war against Hitler. And, uh, of course, within the church also, there were powerful voices speaking loudly, boldly against the consecration, insisting that it could not be done, must not be done. Now, in order to understand what it was at stake here, we have to realize the, the question of, of what orthodoxy had done <clears throat> by taking their stand for schism in the East, the, the church in the East had declared itself basically a department of state. <clears throat> Remember, the issue ultimately was the fact that the capital of the empire, the center of economic, social, legal, military power in Constantinople, gave to the bishops of Constantinople a certain arrogance at the understanding that the bishops of the capital, the bishops of the emperor, should have a certain status which elevated them above the historical patriarchal seats of the church and ultimately at least giving them equality with the See of Peter in Rome. The idea that the bishop who was, as it were, the court chaplain of the emperor should have the religious power commensurate with the imperial power in Constantinople is a matter of tying the religious power, the spiritual power, to the throne of Caesar. This was to prove a 
tragic, tragic mistake for those of the Orthodox that went into this Orthodox uh, trap, as it were. As history would show, it would be a very serious, serious mistake that the popes had resisted. Sometimes, at the peril and even the cost of their lives, they would not be puppets of the emperor. Even back to the earliest times, in confronting Augustus, in confronting Caesars, the bishops of the church were bold, very brave, courageous in standing up for our Lord, in rebuking the emperor for his public sins, for his uh, arrogating to himself powers that he did not have from Christ. But when the Orthodox bishops of the East threw their lot in, as it were, with the local cultures of the people and with the political power of the area, ultimately with the emperor himself, they found themselves now being pawns of and more and more controlled by the political power, that their interests became one with the interests of the emperors, the kings, and so on and so forth. Now, this was to come to its ultimate conclusion with the rise of the Bolsheviks to power, and they found that their Russian Orthodox Church was a handy tool of the government that could be exploited, used and abused by the Bolsheviks to carry out their plan of seizing not only the bodies, but even the souls of the Russian Orthodox people, the peoples of Russia. You can see why Our Lady had such a very dear devotion for the peoples of Russia who had been so devoted to her for so many years. She wanted to rescue them. She singled them out for her rescue from the powers of hell dominating their country and, yes, even thoroughly infiltrating their church and making it a, a, a tool of Bolshevism, atheistic communism. So when we think of Our Lady's desire to convert Russia back to the Catholic faith again, she was singling out those people of Russia for their historical devotion to her and her desire to restore them to the bosom of the church. But many people don't understand what was at stake here. You see, when Our Lady said that the consequence of consecrating Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary would be the conversion of Russia, she was giving that as a counterpart to what she had just said, that if there was a failure to do what she was asking, that Russia, rather, would spread her errors throughout the world, and she would rather convert the world to her godless ways. This was even before the Bolshevik Revolution, notice, which followed within a month afterwards, a month after the miracle of the sun in October of 1917. The Bolshevik Revolution took place. But Our Lady was speaking in terms of the need of the consecration of the peoples of Russia to come back to the Catholic faith, not just to 
bring them back from Bolshevism and Marxism. So it was a matter of restoring these people to the Catholic Church again, or a matter of letting them be basically devoured by atheistic communism and spreading this hellish creed of Marxism throughout the world. One thing, one was going to be converted, and one was going to do the converting. Either the Catholic Church was going to pronounce this consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart, and thereby convert Russia, bringing it back into the Catholic faith, or, failing that, Russia was going to be the seedbed of error that was going to convert the world. And we're going to see, very briefly, that the church herself would actually be at stake here. It was either the church was going to convert Russia by the power of Mary's intercession, or Russia was going to infiltrate the church and turn the church, actually, into an agent of communism. That's what was at stake here. One was going to be the, do the converting, and the other was going to be the converted. Which was it going to be? Would the then communist Russian government, the party, the Communist Party, actually lose power as the Russian people not only return to their faith of the Orthodox, but return to their faith as Catholics? Or was the Catholic Church going to be taken over and used as a tool of revolution for Marxism? That was the question here. No less than that was at stake here. So here's what we found. Pius XII, just as Pius XI before him, did not consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, as Our Lady had asked. Remember, there were three phases to that request. <clears throat> there was the request of Our Lady in 1917, when she mentioned only the Holy Father consecrating Russia to her Immaculate Heart. She said it would be done, <clears throat> and she said Russia would be converted. In 1927, ten years later, <clears throat> Lucia said, that the time would soon come to make that consecration. And in 1929 is when Lucia said, now is the time to make the consecration, but it must be done by the Holy Father in union with all the bishops throughout the world. And so the sense was a public consecration of Russia on a, a very special occasion, a ceremonial consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That was not done then, and it has been not, not been done to this day. <clears throat> in 1942, then, Pope Pius XII did have the consecration of Russia, a consecration that he led, I should say, a consecration of the world with an oblique mention of Russia, not by name. That was in October, October 31st, 1942, during World War II. And shortly thereafter, in the beginning of 1943, our Lord told Lucia that our Lord was pleased with that, but it was incomplete. <clears throat> what she said then was, 
Now what is necessary to make that consecration complete is for all of us to consecrate ourselves to the Immaculate Heart, each and every one of us, the faithful, that we must consecrate ourselves, our families, our homes, our dioceses, our countries. We must consecrate all of these things to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That is what was revealed after Pius XII's prayer of consecration in 1942. In 1952, in July, actually the 7th of July, 1952, Pope Pius XII fulfilled the prophecy of Our Lady in 1917 when she said that the Holy Father will consecrate Russia to my Immaculate Heart. She did, he did exactly that in an apostolic letter in the official legal publication of the Catholic Church, the Octa Apostolica Cities. You can go, you can look that up, and you can see that consecration by name of Pope Pius XII in a document in which he details the history of the Russian people and their relationship with the Catholic Church and ends with a solemn consecration of all the peoples of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in the hopes that it would bring peace. But he did not mention explicitly the tie with Our Lady's requested Fatima. It certainly wasn't done with all of the bishops in the world. It was a public act only officially, legally, but not ceremonially. But it would be a mistake to think then that each of these three phases has been realized. The, only the first phase, Our Lady's request that the Holy Father would consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart. Later, Our Lady said it would be done by the Holy Father, but it would be late. But this is after she wanted, she said that the Holy Father should do it with all the bishops of the world. And then in 1942, after that incomplete consecration, that now what is necessary is for every single one of us the faithful, to consecrate ourselves to our Immaculate Heart, and in doing so to consecrate our families, our homes, to consecrate our, our dioceses, our country. In other words, we must make this consecration general throughout all of the Church, every single one of us. This is sometimes overlooked, and I don't understand why, because there are those who will insist on the first mention of 1917, the 2nd of 1929, and yet, when this statement was made in 1942 by our Lord about the incomplete consecration and what is necessary, they tend to ignore that as though it doesn't count. I don't understand why, how they can do this. They point this out, though. The failure to make that consecration, when and how Our Lady asked for it, has had catastrophic consequences. Not only has Russia not been converted back to the Catholic faith, but no sooner was Pope Pius XII dead than a man named Giovanni Rancali, Giovanni Battista Rancali, was chosen to be his successor. He took the name of John XXIII. John XXIII was a man who has Apostolic Nuncio, the representative of the Catholic Church under Pope Pius XII, to Paris. John XXIII was a man who was 
uh, on great friendly terms with all the leftists and socialists and masons of Paris. The man made no secret of it. He was the darling of the Masonic crowd. He was the darling of the leftists who courted him and he reveled in their courtship. He loved their attention. <clears throat> this man, Jean Baptiste Roncalli, <clears throat> Roncalli opposed the consecration of the, Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He even opposed the consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He used his influence to prevent it from happening. Rather, he was on very good terms with the leftists. He would rather be on good terms with the leftists than be on good terms with Our Lady and to fulfill her wishes. Another man in the church at that time, under Pius XII, who was nefarious and determined to prevent the consecration, was Giovanni Baptist Martini. Montini. Montini was a Monsignor who was the pro-secretary of state under Pius XII. Pius XII would not name him the, to the office of the secretary of state. And he found through diplomatic channels that while Pope Pius XII would not enter into diplomatic relations with Moscow, Montini was doing it behind his back he was carrying on correspondence with communists behind the Iron Curtain. He was in contact with Moscow. This pro-secretary of state was maneuvering behind the back of the Pope, behind the back of the church, to further the communist program of detente, of Ostpolitik, to somehow gather some sort of uh, concordat or let's say modus vivendi with the communists some sort of live and let live agreement with the communists whatever he was working on it was absolutely contrary to what the Catholic faith had taught us about communism and how we are to hold communism and absolutely reject it not deal with it in any way Pope Pius XI himself it talked about socialism, and that is what communism is. It is militant world socialism. He said that it is intrinsically evil, and no Catholic who would be worthy of that name can cooperate with it in any way. And here is Montini carrying on his own private negotiations with the communists of Moscow. Pope Pius XII discovered this was going on, and he basically sacked Montini as pro-secretary of state and tried to find a way to, in a sense, shelve him. Unfortunately, he resorted to an old tactic that was going to backfire horribly. The see of Milan had just become vacant by the death of its cardinal archbishop. And Pius XII decided to avoid the scandal that would arise from simply firing Montini by giving the appearance of naming him to a higher post. Curiously enough, Pius XII said, yes, he would name him to the See of Milan, 
but never consecrate him, never name him a cardinal. Well, again, a very serious blunder, because after Pius XII died, who was elected but Rancali, the former Parisian apostolic nuncio, who had been so friendly with the left. He became John XXIII, and he brought with it his grand design to make peace with the communists. And who did he make a cardinal but Montini, who then, after him, would become Paul VI. And these two men <clears throat> brought in everything. They were the consequences of the failure to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, <clears throat> to summon the Russian people back from the schism of orthodoxy into the fold of the faith. They were the answer then to the communist dream to finally gain control of the papacy. And when they, <clears throat> Roncalli and Montini, came into that office, they began to elevate all of their friends, their leftist friends, into positions of power. And so the floodgates were open for the leftists to gain more and more power, more and more control in the, in the church. Again, this answers the question of who converted whom. If the church, through the Pope, had not failed to make that consecration, Our Lady gave us no doubt, but that her powerful intercession would have gained the graces necessary for the overthrow of the Bolshevism and the conversion of Russia. But the failure to make that consecration meant just the opposite happened. It was Moscow that gained the upper hand. It was Moscow now who had its chosen people come into the Holy See and occupy the offices of the Vatican, hijack the offices of the Church in the person of Roncalli, in the person of Montini, and the leftists would go and maintain this charade all the way through the so-called conservative John Paul II, who is credited with having overthrown the power of communism in Russia. Actually, he was simply, again, pursuing the perestroika, the Ostpolitique, and so on, and allowing the leftist line to gain more and more power until we finally now have Francis. There's a continuum from that failure to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart through the election of Roncalli, then Montini, and all the way through to Francis. We see this steady march. Even the election of Benedict XVI, Ratzinger, and then his, some say, forced resignation to clear the way for Francis. It has all been orchestrated every step of the way. And it was made possible because of the failure to make that consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Well, having failed that, now we know what we have to do. Our Lord himself has told us 
We must consecrate ourselves, all of us, each and every one of us, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That's what is required now. The idea of having a Francis consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the idea of having a Francis consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, together solemnly with all of the bishops of the world, with these leftist bishops he's putting in place everywhere, is absolutely out of the question. Those who continue to insist that this is where it stands, this is what everything depends on, uh, a man like Francis and his, his bishop henchman, leftist henchman, consecrating Russia, would give us little or no hope, certainly. But the request of our Lord after the incomplete consecration, prayer of consecration of Elias twelfth, has given us now new hope. He has given us a way to accomplish what had not been accomplished before, to do what had not been done before. Because we can answer the call to consecrate ourselves, each and every single one of us. We can consecrate our families. We can consecrate our dioceses. We can consecrate our country. And we can spread and spread the message of Our Lady for the need of this consecration everywhere. Not to have people looking to a Francis and his bishops to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart in some great solemn ceremony, which is a pipe dream, to say the least, a delusion. But rather to look to ourselves, as our Lord has said, we can do that. This is what gives us hope. This is something that can be done. This was our Lord's way of now giving it to us to respond to Our Lady's requests. <coughs> it is crucial that we do so. So I want you to understand here that we this was a, a, a battle, and it is Our Lady's battle. It is Our Lady's battle. She said in 1917 that through all, all of this, um, all of this con, 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 uh, conflict and so on, uh, ultimately her Immaculate Heart would triumph. Now the only way her Immaculate Heart can triumph is if this is the victory of her Immaculate Heart. Her Immaculate Heart has to win the victory for it to be her triumph. And the only way that her Immaculate Heart can win the victory is if this is her battle. And it is. It is her battle. We should not be afraid to say that it is her battle, that God has placed this in her hands to fight this battle and to win this. You might say, and certainly Protestants might say, this is, this is outrageous that you would say that it is Mary who is going to fight this battle. This victory is going to be God's. And when Mary says, my Immaculate Heart will triumph, well, this is another example of you Catholics glorifying Mary above God. I say, not so. I'd say rather quite the contrary, that if Protestants had any concept of sacred scripture, which they claimed to follow, they would see how it couldn't be any other way, but this has to be Mary's battle. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the very opening chapters of sacred scripture, it is revealed to us that 
God would send the woman who would be the enemy of Lucifer, Satan. God himself stated this explicitly to Lucifer in the garden after that wicked spirit disguised as the serpent had led Adam and Eve, induced Adam and Eve to sin. God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between her offspring and thy offspring. The enmity is between this, the fallen angel Lucifer, Satan, and the woman Mary, who is the mother of the Savior, the offspring that God spoke of there, his offspring. And so the enmity is between the woman and the serpent. And if she is his enemy, then this is her battle. This is her battle to fight. This is her battle to win. But again, those who don't understand the Catholic faith and don't understand the scriptures, they, they don't understand really the very nature of the battle that went on in heaven. When Lucifer rebelled in heaven, when he said, I will not serve, God could have easily simply sent him away instantaneously and immediately plunged him into the abyss of hell. What did God do? He called upon a creature. He called upon a creature, a fellow angel of Lucifer. We know him as St. Michael the Archangel. God called upon this creature who was an equal, according to nature, well, as an angel, to Lucifer. And it was Michael who was commissioned by God to expel Satan. Michael was commissioned to rise up as the enemy of Satan, to resist him, to overthrow him, to cast him out. That's how God does things. He calls upon his creatures. He employs them to his service, doing his will, and in the process, he glorifies them. And he shares with them the glory of victory. This is a far cry from Allah. In Islam, Allah shares nothing with anyone. Even to suggest he has a son is somehow to insult him because he has to share something with the son, a position. And so there's no sharing in Allah at all. It's all servitude. <clears throat> but God, our God, the true God, not only has a son and the Holy Ghost, and they are three persons <coughs> in one divine being. So God also shares even with his creatures, his glory and his life by sanctifying grace. He commissions his creatures to do work for him, to do <coughs> the service that he asks them and rewards them for that service in a spectacular way. Mary here on earth is in a sense a counterpart of Michael, in the archangel. St. Michael was commissioned by God to drive Satan out of the Empyrean heavens because of his rebellion, because of his pride and his arrogance. Michael declared, who is like God? 
and he is glorified and honored by that in heaven and by the faithful here on earth to this very day. Mary is the is the enemy of Satan here on this earth. In this creation, she is that enemy. She is, in a sense, the counterpart of Michael. But she is even more than that. Because the angelic power natural to Michael was at his at, at his service. He could use that angelic power that was natural to him bolstered by the grace that God gave him to overcome Lucifer. Here, it is Mary's humility, her lowliness, you might say the very thing that is the opposite of the great power of an angel. Her lowliness that enables her to withstand Satan. It is the one thing that is the most formidable obstacle to Satan, Mary's humility. That is why she is the great enemy of Satan here in this earth and in this battle. Remember, because of her lowliness, as she herself says, God has done great things for her. And that is God's work and his power can work through her in a spectacular way. First of all, conserving her, preserving her free from original sin for the sake of her vocation to be the mother of the Redeemer, the very Son of God incarnate, which places her above all the angels, St. Michael the Archangel, St. Raphael, St. Gabriel, because none of them can love God the way she loves the Son of God. She loves him as her own child. That is an absolutely unique love that Mary has for God. She can love him as her own child, as a mother loves her child. No other creature, no seraph, no cherub can love God in this way that she loves him. But the exact, the, the, the extreme of her humility was so complete that even the angels were, were quite amazed at that. The absolute submissiveness of Mary to the divine will. When the sacred scripture talks about Our Lady, it talks about how beautiful and glorious she is in heaven now, even before the angels. We contemplate that in the fifth glorious mystery. When we think about the glory of Mary as she is glorified by God among the angels and saints in heaven. But when Lucifer looks at Mary... He does not see beauty for him. What he sees terrifies him because all of those spectacular virtues of Mary in the eyes of Satan are like weapons aimed at him, directed against him. In fact, Scripture tells us that Mary to him is like an army drawn up in battle array and ready for battle against him. That's how she appears to him. And it is her virtues that are her armaments against him. Even, even devils, even, even those who are taking possession of human beings here on earth testify to the fact that the name of Mary, spoken lovingly with great reverence, torments them 
even more than they would be tormented in hell. In hell, they don't have to listen to anyone invoking the name of Jesus or Mary and Joseph with reverence and love. They don't have to hear that. But here on earth, during exorcisms, they do hear our Lord's name, the holy name of Jesus, the Savior, spoken with reverence and love. The name of Mary, the noble lady, spoken of by God, prophesied long ago to the devil. <clears throat> they hear her name mentioned with reverence and love, and it's like thrusting a, a knife into their, into their heartless breasts. It's, 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 it's horrible suffering for them to be confronted with something holy. This is something that God spared them in hell. And it indicates that if they were forced to stand before him in heaven, they would suffer infinitely more than they do in hell right now. And God did not require that of them. But because it is holy things that torment them, torment their minds, their hearts, because they realize what they've done, and there's no excuse for it. Now, when we see God choosing a man, uh, an angel like Michael to lead the charge against Satan in heaven, how can we fail to understand that God would choose a lowly maiden, such as Mary, in all of her humility, to be the enemy of Satan here in this universe, in this world. And it is precisely her humility which is perfectly calculated to vanquish Satan. Why? Well, it was certainly humbling for Lucifer, that proud spirit, to be vanquished by an archangel. But it is quasi-infinitely more humiliating for him to be vanquished by a maiden, by a maiden, a dear woman, a humble soul, completely at the service of God. No match for him according to nature, but more than a match for him according to grace. You remember, again, we Catholics understand that God will use the simplest things and the humblest things, even water. Even blessed water has power over Satan. <coughs> Even holy water has power to torment the devil as much as the fires of hell. <coughs> the fires of hell torment him in, in fandom, and the holy water on earth torments him enough to drive him back to hell. <coughs> well, God can use the humblest, simplest things <coughs> in order to humiliate this demonic spirit who would not humble himself. And so we shouldn't be at all surprised to find that of all the human beings in entire length and breadth of human history, he would choose the humblest of them all to be the one to be the vanquisher of Satan. And that she would, in fact, by virtue of her immaculate heart, immaculate because of her humility, that she would be the one to have victory over him and that the triumph ultimately would be hers in overcoming him. How could it be any other way? This is what God does. This is how he does it. <clears throat> the sacred scriptures tell us, the church has told us for all these years <clears throat> so well how God works 
in such wonderful and mysterious ways, but they're all very beautiful. And for those who have the faith, they do make perfect sense. We see the consistency here. Yes, Mary was telling absolutely the truth when she said in the end, her immaculate heart will triumph. God wants it that way. It would even be, in a sense, a way of honoring Satan for God to say, I am the enemy of Satan. Satan is only a creature. God is so infinitely beyond Satan. Satan wanted to place himself equal to God. And wouldn't that be the case if God would say, well, no creature gets in the way. I'm going to take care of this myself. <clears throat> would that not be taken by Satan as a form of a compliment? But God is so infinitely beyond Satan, a mere creature, <clears throat> that he does humble Satan by having a mere creature and the lowest of creatures, as it were, the littlest, the lowliest of creatures, as his most formidable adversary, and finally his vanquisher. It's so beautiful. Truly something, if we can say this, worthy of God and his magnanimous and uh, great wisdom. So, in any case, I want us to all understand the status of the consecration of Russia, the status of the conversion question of Russia. <clears throat> Russia will be converted. That will happen. <clears throat> I'm sorry to say that without the consecration being done, <clears throat> well, it's not going to happen. But the consecration might now be wrought only at the cost of horrible sufferings. That what was the atrocities that occurred in Spain in the 1930s and what little Jacinta foretold about Lisbon, that it would become the very image or mirror of hell with the atrocities that would be committed there as the Reds tried to subjugate that country in the 1930s, that perhaps that is exactly what the entire world is heading toward now, to becoming that very image of hell and suffering. But through it all, there will be faithful souls, and they will consecrate themselves to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. And in the end, it is that consecration that will obtain the graces necessary for them to share in the triumph of Mary's Immaculate Heart. And yes, then indeed Russia will be converted, and that will be Mary's triumph. <clears throat>